Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. I'm David Myers, director of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, which hosts the podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my friend, Brenda Stevenson, distinguished scholar of U.S. and African-American history at UCLA, and currently on loan to the University of Oxford, where she is the inaugural holder of the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History. Welcome back to Then and Now, Brenda. It's great to be with you again. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I'm also delighted to welcome to then and now Kent Wong, who is the director of the UCLA Labor Center, the major campus institution that acts to bring together workers, students, faculty, and policymakers to address the most critical issues facing working people today. Kent was the former president of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance and just published together with the legendary Reverend James Lawson a book titled Revolutionary Nonviolence, Organizing for Freedom. Kent was a major moving force behind the recent decision to rename the MacArthur Park headquarters of the UCLA Labor Center, the UCLA James Lawson Jr. Workers' Justice Center. Welcome to you, Kent. Thank you. Nice to be with both of you today. So April 29th, 2022 marks the 30th anniversary of the acquittal of four LAPD officers who were captured on video mercilessly beating Rodney King a year earlier. The jury's verdict represented many the workings of a deeply flawed justice system premised on racial inequality. It unleashed a huge swell of anger, frustration, and violence that swept the city of Los Angeles for five days, in the course of which 64 people were killed, more than 2,000 were injured, and up to $1 billion of damage was caused. These events shocked the city of LA and the country and revealed the deep fissures in the fabric of American society. Some thought that the crisis of those days offered up the prospect of resetting the guiding premises of American society. But what have we learned since then? What should we have learned? To help us think through how we got where we are and where we might be headed, I'm delighted now to turn to two wise observers, Brenda and Kent. So let's dive in. The events that shook LA 30 years ago this month have been variously described as the LA Uprising and the LA Riots. These names convey different stories about the events and about race in Los Angeles. So can you help us understand the different language? Uh, Which do you prefer? Let's maybe begin with Brenda. Well, I actually prefer the term uprising or rebellion, either one of those terms uh, than to riots, because riots connotes an overwhelming amount of criminality. And it really does, I believe, erase the notion that there is real value in what has happened, that people actually have a reason for showing up on the streets and um, participating in a number of legitimate means of participation um, in um, political activism. And so it really does, I think riots really focuses on the criminality aspect of it, which there are, you see in these events, there's always some criminality. There's some um, 
shooting that occurs, sometimes loss of life, um, damage to property, loss of property, um, et cetera. So there is criminality that takes place in these kinds of events. But for me, it also, and perhaps overwhelmingly so, particularly in this case and some other cases that I can cite too, it really does have to deal with a change, an attempt to change, systematically change or systemically change what is wrong in our society. And this particular event was focused on the criminal justice system. It was not focused on race in Los Angeles society. It really was focused on the criminal justice system and um, and the problems that one was a- easily able to to see, to articulate, um, et cetera. Kent, what do you think? I do think that the events that occurred in the aftermath of the acquittal of the police involved in the beating of Rodney King uh, was a reflection of years and decades of outrage and anger and frustration at a criminal justice system and at a police force here in Los Angeles Uh, which has not served the needs of the black community and uh, more broadly communities of color. So I do not use the term riot. I use the term uh, civil unrest, which I do think is a uh, accurate description of what occurred. Although, you know, I am sympathetic to the term uprising. I do think that as a student and as a practitioner of nonviolence, I do think that we do need to find ways of channeling uh, righteous anger and indignation in ways that uh, advance positive uh, social change. And just to, to pick up on that point, how, how did the civil unrest measure on that scale? Um, was it um, in some sense a failure because it pushed into the realm of violence? I do think once again, there was there was righteous indignation and anger at the uh, acquittal. And there was also righteous indignation with the uh, years of mistreatment and abuse and problems within the criminal justice system. Um, at the same time, it's it's a tragedy when 64 people die in the course of uh, the um, civil unrest that occurs, and that the massive property destruction and uh, injuries uh, are also um, unfortunate. Uh, I think that we have to understand why it occurred, and we have to come to uh, an assessment of uh, that this was not the first time that this occurred, that back in the 1960s, the Watts Rebellion or uprising, as it's sometimes called, uh, was similarly a reaction to some of the pernicious problems uh, within this community and within Los Angeles at large. Okay. Well, we'll have an opportunity, I think, to discuss later events that moved in, it would seem, a different direction uh, a little bit later in, in the episode. But let's go back to try and understand some of the causes for this uprising. Brenda, although we're marking the 30th anniversary of the uprising in 2022, in fact, there were two key precipitating events that occurred a year earlier um, in 1991. Uh, The first, of course, was the arrest and brutal beating by LA police officers of Rodney King on March 3rd, 1991. And then uh, the murder of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins, who was killed by shopkeeper Sun Jadu on March 16th of that year. Uh, which you have written um, an award-winning book about. And the question then is, how did these events set the stage for what came a year later when the four officers were acquitted uh, by the jury on April 29th, 1992? Can you help set the stage 
by looking back at these two uh, events and, and others that may have really laid the ground for what took place 30 years ago. Well, I think, um, as Kent said, um, this is a long history of a sense of injustice um, that people of color and other people as well who have resided in Los Angeles and other places in our our nation have felt that they have been dealt this kind of injustice with regard to policing, with regard to the court system, juries, special prosecutors, um, etc., that make up the criminal justice system. These two cases, of course, are thought of in tandem because, first of all, they occur very close to one another, less than a month's time. And they are also quite visible to the Black community and other communities as well across that year that leads up until the end of April, you know, um, 1992. And so um, you're talking about two young people who have two different experiences with the criminal justice system um, during this time period and the Black community being very, very aware of what is happening. There are protests that are being held. There are Uh, meetings that are being held across communities, deep within the community, um, et cetera. There are all kinds of recall petitions that are going on. There are strikes at stores that are taking place, boycotts, et cetera. So the community is quite aware of what is happening. With both cases, there is the notion that justice will not be held, but there's also the notion that we need to take a wait and see stance and see what is actually going to happen. And so when you have uh, Mrs. Du is is found guilty of voluntary manslaughter and she is not given any jail time more than what she has already received with regard to before she came out on bail. Um, and then you have what happens with Rodney King and the jury find um, most of the defendants not culpable for what has taken place, then this begin this just appears as if there is an explosion of disbelief, but also of um, here we go again. And this cannot stand, something has to be done for it. So I think that the two cases are intertwined with one another because of their link to the criminal justice system, because of their link to not only to policing, but also to the court system. And I think that's very important for listeners to understand. Oftentimes we think only about the police, but the criminal justice system is made up of many, many different levels. And we think about systemic injustice or injustice, excuse me, then we think not only about the police, but also the court, the judge, the prosecutor, the jury members, um, etc. Right. And in your book on Latasha Harlins, you focus uh, not just on Latasha Harlins and Sun Jadu, but on uh, the, the judge in particular who um, uh, issued the ruling that freed Ms. Du from any jail time adding a very interesting gender dimension. I don't know if you want to say a word about that. Well, one of the things that I always, I, I talk a lot about is where are women in this process? Because oftentimes we think about um, only a male um, system and a male system of praxis. Um, we look at male judges, male policemen, uh, male victims, um, et cetera. And that's what, and we see this playing out over and over and over again, um, even more recently in some of the high profile um, events that have occurred between the police and people who have been victims of the police too. We tend to focus on 
males and not, we don't really focus on what happens to the women, what the women are doing with regard to what's happening to other women, um, et cetera. So one of the things I really wanted to do was to look at the women who were involved in this particular case and where they stood. Were they different from the men? Did they act differently? Did they, were their expectations different? Did they cause different kinds of consequences? And unfortunately, what you see is that it's very played out in very similar fashion as when you have a male victim or when you have a male judge or when you have a male prosecutor, etc. So Kent, um, 30 years ago, when the verdict was announced, you were in Washington, D.C., and you immediately set out to what you do, which is to organize. Uh, you organized a march uh, through the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance to the Department of Justice. Can you sort of take us back to that uh, moment and convey to us what you were thinking and what you were trying to do? Sure. So um, although I was born and raised in Los Angeles and have spent my entire life here, I was actually uh, chairing uh, the launch of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance in Washington, D.C. And we brought together 500 Asian American labor activists from across the country. So here we are gathered in D.C. watching the events unfold and watching the city of Los Angeles erupt in flames as a result of this unjust verdict. And so um, we altered the uh, schedule for our convention, because we thought it was very important that we uh, demonstrate in solidarity with the people of Los Angeles and to speak out against police violence and against the criminal justice system. So uh, 500 Asian American labor activists staged a march on the U.S. Justice Department demanding justice for Rodney King. So this was not what people expected. We had many people from the media come up, journalists, TV cameras. And when they saw 500 Asian American workers marching down the streets of DC, they wanted to know what was going on, what's the, what's the issue. And when we explained that we are marching in solidarity with the people of Los Angeles and demanding justice for Rodney King and demanding the um, uh, commencement of federal civil rights prosecution of the police involved in the beating of Rodney King, uh, that was not what they expected a group of Asian Americans to be talking about. And I do think that it's a reflection of the necessity of generating uh, solidarity and generating multiracial unity against a police force, against a criminal justice system that historically has uh, treated uh, people of color in a, a disparate way. Right. And so... At that time, and with 30 years perspective, how did you and how do you understand the um, intercommunal ethnic tensions that existed between particularly African-Americans and Korean-Americans? And we often think of the Rodney King moment as one um, very much uh, about racial injustice. But as we know, there are also deep ethnic tensions um, in uh, communities uh, cohabited by African-Americans and Asian-Americans. And clearly your march was an attempt to, to speak to that moment. How did you see it then? And really, where, where do you think we've come from that point? That's a very important question because what we saw unfolding in Los Angeles was a pitting of uh, two uh, oppressed communities who had uh, actually a lot of uh, concerns and grievances in common. And if you look at... Um, the treatment of um, 
Asian American uh, workers over the years, if you look at some of the uh, disparities that exist with regard to um, uh, racial injustice, uh, there's actually a lot of similarities. If you look at you know the long history of uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, or the internment of Japanese Americans, uh, the denial of basic rights for Asian Americans over the years, uh, I think that we have um, much more in common and in solidarity with the Black community and the Latinx community than um, many appreciate. And yet, uh, because we have these uh, two communities where um, you had a number of Korean shop owners who, based on their uh, inability to uh, acquire businesses in any other communities but the very poorest communities of Los Angeles, are placed in a situation of conflict and tension where, um, you know, during the civil unrest, there was targeting of Korean-owned shops who were perceived by some as part of the system of oppression, uh, when in fact the Korean uh, merchants had nothing to do with the um, the beating of Rodney King. And yes, absolutely, the acquittal um, of the police officers as well as the unjust sentencing of Soon Ja Do are something that we within the Asian American community spoke out against. But the um, the act of Soon Ja Do was not because she was Korean. It was not, you know, the result of some existing predisposition of, of Korean merchants. And so I do think that our attempt in, in launching the march and demonstration uh, 30 years ago, uh, the continuing work that the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance has done to mobilize support for Black Lives Matter throughout the country has been a continuum of uh, building multiracial unity and of exposing some of the class and racial inequities that exist within our society. So you were involved in putting together this organization, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, um, and it leads to my question about what the state of play was in terms of uh, interracial, interethnic, in interfaith alliances at that time, 30 years ago. What was going on in terms of organizational work to ameliorate tensions and to build bridges between communities? For 30 years, we have absolutely been involved in uh, building multiracial unity and in finding defining ways of bringing communities of color together, bringing uh, working class communities together around our common interests. And so we worked very closely from our inception with the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, with the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, for other labor organizations that represent workers of color to talk about the similarities, to talk about the uh, ways that we need to forge a common agenda uh, against uh, racism and racial injustice and how the criminal justice system historically has not treated communities of color fairly. The court system has not uh, been equitable with regard to the treatment of communities of color. And for those of us within the Asian American community, we also think it is critical to call out some of the anti-blackness within the Asian American community itself and uh, to acknowledge that it was the Black-led civil rights movement that led to the um, uh, challenge of racially discriminatory immigration policies in the 1960s that resulted in a major lifting of racially restrictive policies that had been in um, practice since the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So the very existence of the contemporary Asian American community in the United States today is a direct consequence of the leadership of uh, the civil rights movement led by the black community. 
So you're talking about, in a certain sense, bottom-up activism as a way of uh, ameliorating tensions and building bridges between communities. I'm wondering whether there were any accompanying structural changes that you have seen occur over the last few decades uh, following uh, the events of 1992 that have in a certain sense, and affected race relations um, and the status of, of the criminal justice system in Los Angeles, for better or for worse. So maybe, Brenda, what structural changes, if any, occurred in the wake of these events of 1992? Well, I think what we saw happening, and I, and I just want to thank Kent for his previous answer, because I think it was very comprehensive, um, included a lot of wonderful um, information with regard to your question, David. But at the time of the, you know, of the LA um, uprising or rebellion or civil, civil unrest, there were attempts already to in place to try to um, bring together Korean Americans, Korean Korean Americans, and African Americans because there had been a lot of unrest to a certain extent, whether or not we're looking at boycotts of shops or whether or not we're looking at, you know, problems with fights in high schools or people being killed in shops, but also shopkeepers being killed in shops. And so there was a lot of tension that was building around this moment. And there are people that paid attention to that. So you saw attempts in churches and you saw attempts in civil rights groups as well to come together and to build um, coalitions um, with people to have greater understanding. There afterwards, uh, there was the same... Uh, and more attempt to do so with interfaith exchanges, also with trips to Korea, you know, so that people could understand better where what the culture of Koreans arriving in Los Angeles are, you know, open dialogues that took place too. There was a lot of that that occurred. And I think as a result of that, indeed, there has been less tension between the Korean American community and the African American community um, since this time period. Also, people, I think, were really taken aback by the destruction of, you know, the, the Los Angeles uprising. There were not many streets in South Los Angeles and moving up towards Koreatown that, that was not impacted. That certainly became something that people were aware of how, you know, the inability to understand, the inability to get along, the inability to accept could cause this amount of destruction in life and property. There also, I think, happened with the pressure on the United States in general to bring more focus to communities of color and our treatment in the criminal justice system because of the global attention that the civil unrest um, occurred as well. And of course, there are many reports that emerged as a result of it too, where certain kinds of policies were put into place and certain kinds of programming, building back, um, et cetera, um, that allow, I think, some healing to occur around um, what happened between African-Americans and what happened African-Americans and Korean-Americans. Unfortunately, much of this did not touch the core of the problem, which is the criminal justice system. Um, although we did see a change in the police chief, we did see um, some changes with regard to community policing, um, etc. 30 years later, we, uh, we return uh, to this event, and it's two years after the George Floyd uh, events occurred as well. And so, and, and every 
every month there's a case of policing that's gone wrong, policing in which a, a person of color has been uh, a victim. So even though there are a few cases trickling through where we see evidence of awareness of inequality in the policing system and inequality in the and the system where, where um, punishments are meted out, et cetera. Overwhelmingly, we see the other. We still see that uh, the criminal justice system is one in which people of color and, and poor people and disabled people and people marginalized in some kind of way are not being treated as humanely, um, as fairly as other people are being treated um, in various aspects of our criminal justice system, which is the core of our society outside of voting. Our criminal justice system is really one of the pillars of our society. And so I think that while things have been done, and certainly I think tensions between the African-American community and the Korean-American community have subsided and I'm thankful for that. We still see the core problem existing, which is this inequality within our criminal justice system. Right. And in that that regard, you mentioned, uh, of course, the murder on May 25th, 2020 of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the widespread protests that uh, took place also, which went by the name uprisings, especially under the aegis of Black Lives Matter uprisings and uh, protests that took place across the country, including in Los Angeles. And it makes for an interesting source of comparison, I think, to uh, what occurred 30 years ago. Um, So I'm curious how you see these two moments together. To what extent are they similar and to what extent are they different? Well, I would just oppose them um, that they come from the, uh, the same root, but they're different branches. And so what we see with Black Lives Matter actually is now a global movement. It's not just one. It began in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement actually began in Los Angeles after the Trayvon Martin case that occurred in Florida. There were three women of color who began the hashtag Black Lives Matter, and that kind of took off and became this global movement. But it draws on a long-term history of civil rights and attempts to have equality within our society, whether or not we're looking at, you know, self-help organizations from the 18th and 19th century to the civil rights organizations of the 20th century. Um, This is the kind of organizing that we have going on um, through Black Lives Matter. And although um, people oftentimes try to associate it with violence, actually, if if we read the tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement, if we listen to the people who actually are in Black Lives Matter and who make proposals with regard to what should occur. These are people who are uh, are peaceful, who are not believers in violence and do not um, propose violence, although violence sometimes occurs around the events that they sponsor and that they are part of. I think what we see that's quite different is the organizational tool, how it organized from a small to then a regional and then to a national and now a global organization that is really does monitor what's happening locally, statewide, and nationally and globally, and really has you know organizations um, and efforts in place to 
immediately address whatever the issue is, not only with physical protests where you actually show up to protest something, but also with position papers and dialogue online and witnessing online, um, et cetera. So I think it's, it's quite different from what we saw happening in the uprising, which was in some ways um, long-term coming, but also was quite spontaneous and disorganized. And Kent, I'm wondering how you see these two moments, especially through the lens of your commitment to nonviolent organizing. I very much agree with uh, Brenda's analysis. I think that the power of the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, very much been uh, one that embraces the philosophy of nonviolence, that sees that there is systemic racism and systemic injustice, and it needs to be challenged on uh, multiple fronts, including uh, an evaluation of the criminal justice system, the court system, the mass incarceration of communities of color, and uh, the uh, funding priorities that uh, accompany that. So I do think that we have seen growth and we've seen um, development over the last uh, 30 years. I think the other thing that for those of us here in Los Angeles, there has been, uh, in my view, significant uh, growth and development from critical community leaders who understand the necessity of developing multiracial unity. Um, Karen Bass, the founder of um, Community Coalition, which used to be called the Community Coalition Against Substance Abuse, which grew out of the um, aftermath of the 1992 civil unrest, emerged as a a critical leader who uh, understood the the importance of building multiracial unity and of addressing uh, some of the systemic problems within the community that oftentimes have an economic basis. And uh, the fact that she is now running and may become the first mayor, uh, woman mayor of Los Angeles is extraordinary as someone who has been a bridge builder and as a community leader over the decades. And so I've seen uh, the growth of the social justice movements of Los Angeles that are very intentionally uh, intersectional, are very intentionally multiracial in their orientation and in their spirit. And we've seen that through the organizing campaigns within the labor movement, uh, within the movement around uh, criminal justice reform, uh, and around um, the minimum wage and economic justice. These have all been uh, broad-based, multiracial campaigns that understand the importance of uh, building a common agenda. Right. Well, you mentioned Karen Bass, uh, and and that reminds us of the upcoming uh, mayoral election, um, where two of the major issues uh, that voters are interested in and concerned about are uh, homelessness and rising rates of crime, both of which are sort of refracted through a very racialized lens, and both of which really uh, speak to uh, the persistent state of inequality between rich and poor in our city, which seems to grow wider and wider. I'm wondering how you imagine we address these deep structures of racial and class inequity in Los Angeles. This is sort of asking you to move a bit away from the analysis of uh, the events of 1992 and think about where we've come from that point. There seem to have been uh, salutary changes in terms of how grassroots uh, groups organize and express their protest against an unjust system. But we still have this very deep uh, state of inequity as manifest in the number, the growing number of houseless people uh, in our city, and some would say in in, in the growing rate of crime. So, um, from your 
organizer's perspective, what do we need to do? Do we need to continue to organize at the grassroots level? Obviously so, I'm sure you would say. And and what else? Can the electoral process be um, a an important piece of the solution? Or is that simply perpetuating the system as it has been? So the two years of the pandemic have really laid to bear gross class and racial disparities that exist uh, within our society. And uh, the growing numbers of homelessness, the the problems confronted by those who we term essential workers who have been treated anything but essential workers. They've been treated as uh, dispendable workers. And we see um, uh, disproportionate numbers of workers of color, women workers, immigrant workers who are doing the critical work uh, that is needed to uh, support our society, to uh, support the um, you know, return to some semblance of um, of a you know normal uh, situation, and are on the front lines every day, providing uh, critically needed uh, resources and and uh, food distribution and services that our communities need, uh, and yet they are not uh, provided uh, adequate support, health and safety uh, benefits, and um, as you mentioned, we have an increase in the rise in uh, homelessness, which is in um, direct proportion to problems of not only um, housing insecurity, but also um, economic and food insecurity. And um, as you indicated, these disproportionately impact communities of color. So I do think that in the 30 years, we've seen tremendous growth in a comprehensive uh, organizing approach that understands the necessity of doing uh, grassroots community organizing, grassroots worker organizing. Uh, We see this with the organizing happening at Starbucks and at Amazon and among Uber and Lyft drivers. Um, And and at the same time, we also see the need to uh, change policy and to get progressive people elected into positions uh, of power. The fact that we have five women on the County Board of Supervisors for the first time in history, the fact that we have um, progressive majorities in both the State Assembly and State Senate is a direct reflection of a maturing community activist to understand the necessity of linking uh, community-based organizing, as well as uh, work in the electoral sphere. And Brenda, I'm wondering how things look from your new perch in the UK. You have a deep historical perspective on the events that we've been talking about, and you have a new perch uh, from the University of Oxford, where you hold the Hillary Rodham Clinton Chair of Women's History. How does it look from that perspective? That is to say, the state of uh, the criminal justice system uh, the history of racial relations, the movement from the events of 1992 to uh, the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, well, David, I have to say that being away from Los Angeles hasn't really changed the way that it looks to me. For, for, I, I mean, I still sort of reside in Los Angeles. I go back and forth and, uh, and my house is still there. And um, I read the LA Times every day, etc. My daughter's still there. So I'm quite aware of, you know, what's going on in LA and what's going on nationally. It, it's not um, something that is encouraging. And when I look at the ways in which People who are not wealthy, people who are of certain races, um, people who have certain kind of um, disabilities are treated within our society. I 
am discouraged by the information with regard to houselessness. I am very discouraged by the information with regard to our public school system. I was just looking at some material before I got online with you and was shocked to see in LA Unified, for example, only three out of 10 black children are at grade level with regard to English and only two out of 10 with regard to math. That to me is just a devastating statistic. We all know the statistic with regard to black incarceration in Los Angeles, you know, 17 times more than white incarceration in Los Angeles, mass houselessness before the pandemic, even, and, and certainly during the pandemic, you know, we saw African Americans are really overrepresented in the houseless population. There should be no houseless population, I might add. And, you know, with this in terms of the mayoral election, which is about to occur, um, certainly that has to be the number one. And even though all these other problems exist, that for me, um, from my perch, seems to be the number one problem, not being able to have a place to rest or a place to wash or a place to eat or a place to enjoy one's family. So, you know, there's also the problem of unemployment, which again has focused on, has centered really on black and brown people um, in the unemployment race in communities like my community, which is also, you know, the mayoral candidates um, community as well. And you see this large unemployment rate um, that's going on with the black community, much more so than other communities. And so there is so much to be done. There is so much to be addressed. And of course, we've already talked about the difficulties with the criminal justice system um, too. There is a lot that needs to happen. And I think that Kit is absolutely correct in, in that, you know, this people coming together and working across all kinds of lines that have been drawn, not by those people, but by other people, um, and that are systemic within our society, that is certainly the first and many, many steps into trying to uh, mitigate some of these problems. But the problems are serious. They are multiple. They're overlapping. And we really have to just continue to acknowledge them, and to try to work together to solve them. And uh, as we move towards conclusion, let me just ask you, based on where we've come from, what are the one, what is the one or perhaps two most significant structural changes that you would like to see that you feel is essential to creating a more just and fair society? Well, I'm an educator, so I have to start with education. I believe deeply in the promise of education. Um, and, and so I think a better public school education for every child um, and better access to higher education for every child that is a, an, an affordable education, I think is really, really important. And secondarily, I would have to say that we really have to address the problem with voting. I think that um, the, to be able to vote um, is, uh, is certainly a right, a constitutional right, but it's also a necessity for our democracy. And we cannot achieve what we want to achieve in terms of having um, equity within our society without um, having a strong democracy that represents the, the problems and the hopes and the dreams of every person in this nation. So I'll, I'll stop with those two. 
in a minute, I'll, I'll give Kent an opportunity to offer up his suggestions, but I do just want to put in a plug for two reports of the Luskin Center for History and Policy, uh, the first of which uh, dealt with uh, access to voting in the state of California, which could be found on our website. And the second is um, a major study on the past, present, and future of homelessness and housing precarity in Los Angeles, um, uh, both of which address uh, both the past and present of of those important phenomena that you've spoken of, Brenda. Kent, if you had a magic wand, as it were, um, what would be the two uh, the one or two most important structural changes you would like to see take place in Los Angeles over the next period of time? I completely agree with Brenda with regard to the critical importance of education, as well as the critical importance of uh, defending voting rights and to uh, ensure a strong uh, democracy, which is currently under attack. As the director of the UCLA Labor Center, I would also address the issue of worker justice and economic justice. Uh, during the two years of the pandemic, we have seen a growing economic inequality. We have seen billionaires making obscene profits during the pandemic and as a consequence of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, this is a reflection of um, the basic denial of worker rights to form and join unions and a structural economic system that does not work for uh, the people who are at the front lines as essential workers and who are uh, providing a critical role within our society. And so I do think that uh, issues of strengthening worker rights and economic justice will be critical to address the pernicious problems of economic inequality that are so rampant within our society. Well, on that prescriptive note, as we point towards possibilities for repairing our society, I would like to thank Professor Brenda Stevenson and Kent Wong for making time out of their busy schedules to be with us for this really illuminating conversation. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, David. Thank you, Kent. And thank you, Kent. And uh, to our listeners, uh, have a healthy and safe day. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.